0: You are listening to a Living Cities Forum podcast. This conversation is a satellite event to the Living Cities Forum. And my name is Chris Burke, and I'm the Melbourne Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. We're speaking today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. So first, I would like to acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anyone is listening to a recording of this event today i have the pleasure of talking to Mailing loco who was one of the speakers at the living cities forum which centers on the theme of material flows, or rather, how the flow of materials and their byproducts around the world is wreaking havoc and demands urgent solutions for change. To say Mei Ling was a multitasker would be a huge understatement. Among her many listed achievements, we can see that she is an educator, an architectural scientist, and a biomaterials technology researcher. Mei Ling is from Ghana and the Philippines and her work centres on the upcycling of agro waste and biopolymer materials. To top all that off, she is shortly set to join Yale University's School of Architecture as an assistant professor. Now, at Bloomberg, I'm used to interviewing the heads of multi-billion dollar corporations and funds that now all seem to be racing to make the most grandiose and impressive claims about reaching goals of net zero but without providing a lot of specific detail about how they're going to get there. So it's refreshing to speak to someone with a resume as impressive as yours, uh, who actually has tangible solutions and ideas for the here and now about how we can become a more sustainable economy. So welcome to Melbourne, Meiling. Uh, it might be helpful for listeners if you perhaps start by telling us more about waste. What is it and why are we using it now?
1: Thanks, Chris. Um, it's wonderful to be here. Um, so waste is basically byproduct materials that come out of agriculture and we produce about 94 billion tons of it every year around the world. So by and large, it's probably one of the world's most underutilized waste resources. And I started <coughs> looking at agrowaste, um, in sort of 2011, about just over a decade ago. Um, and I sort of noticed them in the form of coconut husk, which were sort of found, um, you know, by the roadsides. Um, you know, over the last sort of two decades, there's been a sort of boom in coconut products, all around this health and um, cooking and cosmetic industries, a multi-billion-dollar industry. And the byproduct of that, of course, are the husks. Um, typically, what happens is people burn them in open air. Um, And in places like Ghana, for example, um, it's actually illegal to dump them in the municipal waste uh, systems because they're so heavy. They form a lot of problems in the landfill. And so people, actually coconut traders, after selling it, um, you, your fresh sort of coconut water, will pile them up by the roadside at the end of the day. And because it's illegal, they'll find a place to burn it at night. So what begins as sort of a land pollution problem quickly becomes an air pollution problem. And um, at the time I was doing my PhD at a research institute called CASE, uh, the Center for Architecture, Science and Ecology based in New York. And I decided to sort of look at you know coconut husks as sort of a building material. Um, it was an exciting time in upstate New York because um, there are sort of a range of emerging bioadhesive companies. And so for us to use one of the constituents of the husk, which, is, which are these really nice long tensile fibers with these sort of bioadhesives, um, we sort of explored that as a building, a range of building material applications.
0: So what are the challenges of using these materials? Um, and, and I guess more importantly, do you see the potential for international acceptance of these kind of materials by the building industry?
1: Yeah, there there are quite a number of challenges. I think the first one begins with, at the moment, we sort of see these materials as waste. And because it's waste, no one cares about the quality that they're found in. And also because it's produced by a whole range of stakeholders, they're distributed. So those two factors means that they're going to be expensive to sort of collect and ensure that they come at a good sort of quality to produce standard building products. So that is the biggest challenge from a production standpoint. Um, There are other sort of challenges around the fact that no agro waste no coconut, no corn is ever created equal. So if you get your corn um, grown in Guatemala versus Ghana, you're going to get two very different products. But there are ways of standardizing them. Um, But in terms of technical processing, There is so much, there's there's been a lot of progress over the last decade, I would say. Um, I think probably the leader in these types of materials being used or adopted is, of course, bamboo, where we've seen a lot of acceptance, a lot of standards being developed now for using them from everything, um, from insulation all the way to sort of engineered, structural building materials. Um, But... You know, I think for me, the biggest challenge I'm seeing is even though we're showing the technical performance as possible, they're strong enough, they can deal with fire, um, they have a ton of other performance in terms of insulating your buildings, um, in terms of heat control, acoustics, there's still this sort of social um, and cultural resistance to that. And I think that's much more deeper Um, and it's much more difficult and slow to change, you know, our building cultures. I think we're incredibly used to sort of material systems that are, that don't react. (laughs) Um, given the COVID pandemic, we also are incredibly antiseptic in our environment, antibiotic. Um, and so bringing back all these properties around living materials, their smells. The way they deal with heat and moisture, which is much slower. You can't just, you know, turn on a remote and get cool, dry air, you know, within seconds. I think those are some of the barriers around human behavior, human um, sort of perception of these materials that we've got to start dealing with. And um, I think I think this is where sort of the social sciences around these materials, the research that's going into understanding human perception and behavior around these materials. I think that's where a lot of the work needs to be. Um, and I would also say, you know, um, you, particularly in the global South, building with what's natural and local is actually a huge challenge because everybody wants to work with concrete, glass, steel. Those are the materials of mo- being modern and progressive. And how to make that cool again, uh, building natural materials and aspirational, I think that falls back on designers to inspire. Um, And this is where I see design playing a huge role.
0: Just going back to um, the challenge you referred to, the the cost challenge, obviously everyone is going to... That's everyone's first priority uh, in in the commercial commercial industry. Um, Has that challenge been exacerbated by the inflationary environment we now find ourselves in after after the pandemic and the supply chain seizing up?
1: Well, actually... um, I think one of the I guess unprecedented moves is you know during the pandemic you had a lot of people who were living working in cities going back to more rural or even their home home environments where um working with things resources that were local became you know sort of the idea and the goal and so I just think to a number of you know manufacturing partners in the biocomposite industry that I know and have worked with and what they've done you know, in terms of going back home and starting local, uh, local materials-based industries. So that's sort of a move that I think is really great. Um, not all of these applications have gone directly into the building industry. There's been packaging, um, other types of sort of homemade products, home craft products, clothing, textiles. There's been a huge... Um, And I think, you know, the sort of reliance, you know, on sort of imported technologies and chemicals um, was definitely challenged. The cost for that went up quite a bit. You think of glues, you think of water treatment chemicals um, and the fact that they may have gone up, they might have doubled in price. And so people started looking for different alternatives, um, stuff that was more affordable and stuff that was local. So they weren't impacted by, um, you know, importation. And so I think that's been a positive effect. However, I think, um, you know, when I look at sort of, you know, bio-based materials companies that have been doing this for, you know, at least the past 10 years, they had a lot of challenges, of course. Um, A lot of their customers and clients that were buying their products obviously cut down. And you think of a lot of the products that, you know, these kind of companies were selling, they were mostly in the luxury realm. And that's obviously the first to go. Um, and so they had to adapt and figure out new business models um, and new types of products. Um, so, yeah, definitely impacted, you know, by COVID. And um, I think it's it's forced everybody to sort of revisit their business models. Um, mycelium, for example, which is um, essentially fungi, the vegetative state of fungi. It's being used all over the world for... Um, basically an alternative to styrofoam. Um, It's a low density material, could be used as building insulation or for packaging. Um, They've developed a strategy, um, the world's leading um, mycelium-based company called Ecovative in upstate New York. Um, They began licensing to companies in Europe, um, in the Netherlands, in France, in London, and now Turkey. Um, So essentially, instead of sending all of their product, which was hemp waste inoculated with mycelium, to these countries, they licensed the technology. And so they could produce there with their local agro waste um, which I think is great. Um, And it cuts down all of the transportation emissions that you typically wouldn't want with a bio-based material. So that's been incredible to see. Yeah.
0: You delivered a lecture last year to the Institute of Architecture, which was called Unalienation, uh, or the role of the architect in unalienating different actors and materials that surround the the building material life cycle. Can you tell us more about what that means?
1: Yeah. So this term, um, unalienation, actually, was coined by a mentor of mine, um, an amazing mathematician called Ron Aglash, who's been doing a lot of work around this sort of concept called generative justice. And he sort of situates generative justice as um, if you have sort of capitalism on one side and socialism on the other side, both of which kind of have something in common, which is the top-down extraction of um, sort of value from the land. Um, Generative justice kind of runs perpendicular to that. Um, and it's sort of this bottom-up generation of value. And the generative in this, this theory is about the bottom-up, um, whether it's land, whether it's farmers, whether it's consumer, consumers who are alienated from, you know, what goes into producing whatever they consume. Um, it could be waste that is unalienated in the sense that there's no way for it to return back into the land. And... Um, And so the justice part um, of this theory has to do with circulating whatever is generated within a much wider stakeholder ecosystem. And in the world we live in, a lot of that value is sort of sequestered in sort of owners of factories or companies. And very little gets distributed to the others in the stakeholder system. Um, And that was... That's been really inspirational for thinking about how an architect or a designer could participate within, be it the agri-waste industry or just in general, you know, our our economy today. Because I think architects have sort of sat in a sort of a position that has sort of driven, helped to drive this extraction cycle. And in a lot of the projects that I've worked on, I've um, tried to imagine... And place the architect at another point in the stakeholder system, you know, whether it's working with waste collection companies to unalienate their waste and also bring them into this sort of value generation um, framework or with urban farming enterprises that are on the rise now who are producing and growing a lot of agricultural crops and have nothing to do with both the waste coming out of their gardens and their plates and generating building materials from that, um, or with companies who are doing it right already, um, who have done everything to ensure their sort of fair trade wages being paid to people who work with them, um, and are trying to treat all of their toxic, um, you know, outputs from their processing. Um, and so I think this sort of expanded territory is there for architects um, to sort of occupy, you know, in this sort of generative justice framework. And I think, you know, there's sort of an ongoing sort of um, fear that architects are losing agency, um, you know, with um, many forces that are happening in the profession. But I think this builds out many areas of expertise and expands our role um, and this is sort of what is inspiring, I think, you know, for me to think about when I'm working with agro waste, because all of a sudden it's not just the material stock in the buildings, but it's the material stocks coming from agriculture, coming out of buildings, coming out of the food industry, and how that integrated life cycle um, can open up new spaces for design.
0: I mean, it's fascinating, but you, and you're really talking about um, encouraging people to embrace encouraging industry to embrace a whole new way of thinking and doing business. Um, I mean, how do we go about implementing these kind of projects on the scale that's necessary to to bring about change when we we live in a world preoccupied with short-term interests and that seems to be reeling from crisis to crisis?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think when... You, know, you take a step back
0: um, in
1: whatever sort of field or industry that you're in um, or in your job. Um, I think looking at this sort of integrated materials life cycle um, causes you to see a lot of the, the waste essentially in the system. And um, you can view this in the building industry, for example, or in the food industry. Um, not necessarily just in terms of materials, but there's space that's wasted. Um, When I think about, you know, the returns that one needs to make by making some of these bio-based products and the costs associated with it, um, when you start to look at intersectoral um, opportunities, um, for example, um, one of the first projects I did was with the Royal Institute of British Architects in Liverpool. And our sort of goal in that project was to actually grow the building materials on site and at a very affordable cost. Um, one of the places that we realized had such underutilized space was <laughs> McDonald's um, food refrigeration for the city. Um, and so we could store the agricultural waste inoculated with mycelium in you know their actual warehouse for a fraction of what it would cost to actually own you know, an enterprise, an actual factory of your own. Uh, when we were setting up the actual, um, I mean, low-tech bioreactor where you could grow, we realized that the asbestos industry in the building sector does this sort of um, air control unit all the time when they have to remove asbestos. And so there are all these skills in the asbestos industry associated with removing toxic material that could be applied or repurposed to grow bio-based materials. Um, and what was nice about growing on site is there is no need for energy. These bio-based materials, in particular fungi, grow at room temperature and all you need to do is enclose it to ensure it's humid in there. Um, and so there's all these gains that we, we realized um, where so much skill and so much resources weren't being used at full capacity, but that could be easily leveraged for this new form of distributed biomanufacturing, if you like, um, in the scale of a gallery, in the scale of your home. Um, obviously this is done you know, on a much larger scale now. Um, in the Netherlands, for example, one of our sort of manufacturing partners is a mycelium Buildings Material Company that's situated inside a food mushroom factory cuts down a lot of the, you know, infrastructural costs um, because they're based right there. There's no transportation, you're right in the building. And a designer who would like to do this um, doesn't need to actually own a factory or space. They just send a digital file, uh, the form is milled, and you grow the that that company actually grows all of the bio-based materials that you've designed and ships it off to your client. Um, so I think that um, you know there's there's a lot in our current um, industrial sector when we start collaborating across food, agriculture, buildings, where a new type of emerging bioed manufacturing enterprise could emerge. I see that happening you know, a lot in some of the examples I just talked about. Um, And, you know, this is happening all across the world. I mean, in in Ghana, where I'm from, there is, um, you know, a ton of companies that are coming out now collecting waste, uh, agricultural waste, waste that typically is burnt, as I described before, and are sort of investigating a number of transformation pathways because all of a sudden they're realizing there's value in that waste. Um, For companies that typically, um, you know, sort of make a specific type of product, um, which was exported, now they're realizing that there's a ton of domestic opportunities Um, because of the COVID pandemic, they had to pivot and come up with a number of different applications. And what we're seeing now is very flexible transformation pathways in these companies, depending on whether there's a domestic or a sort of foreign demand for their products. And so that sort of flexibility and nimbleness in sort of production is something that I think is addressing, you know, how quick and resilient businesses need to be today. Um, Yeah, so sort of examples that I'm seeing in the field, you know.
0: Um. Just on on Ghana, I mean, I'm assuming that much of this agro-waste is produced in some of the world's uh, poorest countries. Um, In Ghana, currently, um, investors have sold off the country's dollar bonds on a a big scale. The government is now being charged around 20% interest to borrow money. That's the highest amount ever as they await the outcome of of an assistance package from the IMF. Inflation, meanwhile, has surged for a 19-year high of 30%. So we see yet again there's a global crisis and emerging markets get hit first and that impact tends to accelerate whatever pain or stress a country is already experiencing. So I'm wondering can can your type of work go some way to to alleviating these seemingly never-ending cycles afflicting some of the world's poorest people?
1: Totally. I mean, I think, you know, particularly in the building industry, this is something that the speed at which building is happening in emerging economies is, hasn't slowed down, particularly during COVID. And I think, you know, in places like Ghana, 80% of all our materials that we build with are actually imported. Um, And unlike probably places like Australia um, or the United States, um, where there's sort of a top-down and professional um, ecosystem around building, in places like Ghana, you know, you've got 80 to 90% of building being led by the private sector, itself built um, And that sector um, demands a ton of materials, which unfortunately now is completely reliant on this imported material economy. And so I think one of, well, the only way we're actually going to meet the demands for, you know, the rising population and shelter is to look at local alternatives. Um the biggest promise I see is actually in earth-based building materials at the moment, um, because cement, concrete forms probably over 70% of the materials we import to build with, and cement has become the de facto. Um, in cities, every wall construction, as much as 80% is made of concrete. These are massive, heavy, you know, um, carbon-intensive um, buildings. And this is where earth construction, um, even earth construction reinforced with natural fibers, um, can meet that technical performance, but come at a much lower cost um, and is locally available at, at scale. Um, so that, that reliance on sort of a locally abundant material is, is one of the things that I think can really alleviate um, some of the pains we're seeing around, you know, population growth and housing. Um, but beyond that, I think there's also the need for us to develop um, our agricultural sectors. For so long, you know, the continent of Africa has been exporting low value commodities without adding any value and beginning to keep the, the waste within local economies and circulate or at any point in that value transformation, whether it's a husk becoming an insulative material Becoming a high-density material, becoming activated carbon at the end of its life cycle, it ensures that there's a number of bounces happening locally, instead of what we've seen historically, where you have a material barely even touching the hands of someone locally and just is exported out one bounce. Um, and this is, you know, a place where I see a lot of promise, but there's, you know, a lot of work to be done. I think, um, you know, you look at building codes in cities that drive so much of how today's buildings are, uh, have permission to even be built. And there is com- a complete lack of, you know, any bio-based material in that, um, in that code. Um, bamboo is probably one of the few ones that are being adopted in a few countries, um, but there's so much resistance and hesitance around the performance of these materials and to build confidence means to put it into the code. Um, so that's one way that we can accelerate their acceptance, you know, in places like Ghana, for example. Um, yeah,
0: is there an opportunity here in terms of um, in, in terms of the commercial industry with with so many developers now, especially publicly listed developers coming out and with their net zero targets and is there an opportunity there for for uh, for you to to engage with these kinds of companies? Are, are they approaching you or your peers, um, or are they largely just paying lip service to to uh, to what they're what they're aiming to do?
1: Um, do you mean specifically in like this side of the world, or in places like anywhere? On, I guess. I mean, I was yeah. in
0: um, you know I was in London for a while recently working and. And the commercial property landlords there are um, are all um, are, are all you know, coming up with these net zero statements. Yeah. Um, but there is just you know, real estate is one of the is one of the most is one of the biggest polluting industries uh, in the world, um, and so they seem to be they seem to be. Um, they seem to be coming up with these. The, the idea behind these statements is carbon offsets. Not, not, not particularly. Uh, uh, there's not a lot of thought into, or not a lot of kind of action in terms of, uh, in, t- in terms of the construction of the building itself and the operation afterward, and uh, uh, which I think yeah. yields just as much, uh, even more energy than than the, than the construction. And so, I, I suppose I'm just wondering if there's an opportunity. Um, um, are you are you are you uh, engaging with co- the, 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 those kinds of companies, uh, commercial landlords, or anything, or 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 is that is this technology a bit too uh, a bit too in, in its uh, infancy for for those kinds of uh, for those kinds of um, companies applications? Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, so I think. In order to get developers to start using these materials at scale, there's the need to really bring them into the sort of decarbonization framework in a really integral way. And a lot of um, focus is being put on energy efficiency, as you were describing on the building operation phase, which consumes, you know, quite a lot of energy over its lifetime, as much as 60%. And um, I think seeing these bio based materials as a form of carbon storage, you know, that these bio based materials essentially serve as temporary carbon storage because they are biomass that's being sequestered, held in the building for a period of time. And at the end of their life, um, you know, they um, release that carbon. But that idea that you can store them for 50 years. And really sort of enter that transition phase of cutting down carbon offsets um, allows us to sort of see these materials in a different way and and then the opportunities for for how and where they're used in commercial developments becomes um, you know much more um, exciting. So you know I think in the global north, where we're seeing the f- you know the the retrofit um, Uh, need for retrofits because 75% of our building stock, you know, on this side of the, the planet is already built. Retrofit is incredibly important. And I think the opportunities, particularly on the exterior for thermal insulation are enormous. Um, for internal, even for preservation of historic buildings, you look at bio-based binders um, and sort of finishings, thermal finishings, which don't compromise, for example, the exterior because of their, their look and their identity. But on the inside, they play a huge role um, in basically providing efficient thermal insulation and comfort and reducing all of the operational costs that come along with um, mechanically. Um, mechanical operation systems. Um, and then there's also, you know, in New York, for example, um, today if you were sort of retrofitting a building or building a new building, um, you cannot do that unless your roof is either a green roof or has solar panels. And I think the the green infrastructure part of this is really exciting, where you can actually take advantage of the fact that um, you have an exponential amount of surface area, you know, on on your building, whether it's on the walls or on the roof, to do much more than just provide shelter um, and mediate sort of temperature and humidity and climate. It can provide a way to deal with rain. Um, it adds value-added space for you know any of your tenants. Um, and I think that that top floor is always prime real estate. There's a lot you can can do with that, and that might lend itself to a uh, number of different commercial opportunities. Um, And then of course, interior finishings is is a huge one. Um, I think this is the area where we get a lot of interest, um, where you have clients that are interested in sort of a feature wall. And that's where I think it's the surface level um, need, but actually these can actually become the building blocks of your building um, structurally, you know, we've, there's so much progress in cross-laminated timber um, and structural, uh, sorry, engineered bamboo, where they can actually be columns and beams. Um, so it's possible to build tall and incredibly resilient frames, primary frames for buildings um, with these materials. And the infills are infinite, you know, in terms of, you know, whether they're agro waste fibers, mycelium-based materials or the like. Um, and not just necessarily a surface coating because I think you lose a lot of the appeal and the performance of these materials when they're sort of integrated just in that way um, but it is what gets your foot in the door um, and after that you know it's it's onto these the these you know sort of companies to advocate for you know performance and cost wise why a client would you know sort of t- you know basically reconstitute their building with these materials um but I think it needs to be also, I mean, when you talk about public sector, you know, buildings leading the effort, um, when we see, you know, the public sector take on, you know, all our buildings are going to be, uh, I don't know, lead version four certified, platinum or whatever, um, that sends a message down, you know. Um, first of all, it, it allows all of these green building companies to actually demonstrate deploy and scale up you know to meet the demand um of being integrated into public buildings and it builds confidence you know for the private sector to follow so that's a huge um lever um obviously um yeah
0: and i was actually referring to um publicly listed buildings but but what you said there is also um there's overlap that's also extremely relevant yeah what i found really interesting also is that your work um, has touched on the issues of colonialism colonialism and slavery um of course ghana has a long complex history around slavery lost millions of indigenous people to transatlantic trades indeed you've referenced that before with uh, your exhibition a uh, recent exhibition based on the metaphorical doors of no return what is the legacy of sl- slavery in ghana today and how does that resonate in your work?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I think, you know, from an agricultural standpoint, you know, you think of the link between large scale plantation agriculture and slavery and they're inseparable. And um, you think also of today's sort of conditions around fast production, whether it's fast food, fast fashion, fast building and the conditions around labor, which essentially means you're getting incredibly low wages for the amount of time um, you know you put in and skill you put into actually producing a product. And I think those parallels are, are, are very obvious. Um, but in sort of the, the exhibition, you know, you just were talking about grounds for return. Um, it was sort of a, an attempt to address what I was describing before as the cultural barriers to adopting, among many other things, these materials. Um, and I think that the, the resistance, you know, around materials, local materials, natural materials, is part of this sort of colonial mentality um, around devaluing um, what is produced um, close to sites of production, you know, where you have materials that are quickly exported and are not seen or not used primarily for the people that make them. Um, and so the, the exhibition uh, had an installation called The Doors of Return, which was sort of a, a reference to sort of this door of no return in, in one of the oldest and largest slave fort castles in, in Ghana and in Elmina. Um, the materiality of the forts, of course, are are really quite stark. You know, they're they're made of stone and bricks. For every colonial um, sort of um, power that occupied Ghana, whether it was the Danes or the Dutch or the British, they came along with their own bricks of different colors, and those materials are very um, analogous to to the cultures. Um, and I thought very much about also the place in which slavery um, was concentrated in the slave forts, um, the last sites that a slave would occupy before you know, they left the, the continent of Africa. And I was trying to sort of address um, materially how one would reimagine this sort of return. And um, the coconuts, of course, because they occupy the coastal landscapes, um, and a lot of the material economy around the coconut, um, uh, some of the most sustainable and efficient ways of using all parts of the coconut, are sort of celebrated in in sort of the the installation itself. Um, and I think you know, when I when I've sort of designed these materials, I've very much tried to um, uh, design a sort of material identity that one is not necessarily familiar with, but is very much uh, sort of engages the senses. So there's a lot of tactility. Um, There's a surface texture, which evokes um, some relationship to biophilia. Um, The color of the material is very much celebrated, not coated over or sealed. Um, And there's a sort of standardization, um, which sort of in, in sort of, ensure some kind of confidence into how they're not only assembled, but disassembled, how they're going to be durable and last over time. Um, and so those were some of the elements that went into, to that, um, into that, you know, sort of design for that exhibition by and large, I think what's behind that is the sort of collaboration framework that was in place to produce these materials. And I think, you know, in the the enterprise of slavery, we saw the sort of production context um, completely divorced from the industrial research enterprise that typically happened in in United Kingdom or other parts of the world in America. And the production of those panels were actually a collaboration between sort of outlier um, waste collection factories in the industrial um, city Tema in Ghana and bioadhesive companies that were emerging in upstate New York. And that collaboration in terms of glue and agri-waste needed to happen in order to produce some of those panels. Um, For a waste collection company collecting coconut husk in Ghana, that really expanded their market um, and allowed them to participate in research that they would have the resources for. And for those sort of bioadhesive companies in upstate New York, the opportunity to actually open up a, um, a market in Africa, particularly because the building industry in the United States is incredibly difficult to penetrate. They're competing against you know super-engineered plywood, you know um, companies um, that don't have the cost problems that they do. And that sort of, you know, mutual circulation of, of value um, through that collaboration was, sort of, to me the most valuable part of, you know, um, you know, producing that exhibition.
0: And that was just um, that was one of several exhibitions that you've uh, that that you've put on recently, from uh, London to Berlin to Istanbul. Um, how important is the visual nature of this work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to um, convince people to use a product if they can't see it or appreciate it. So one of the most um, potent markets for these materials to to go into is insulation. And insulation is something no one sees. (laughs) You cover it up and... You know, who cares? And no one cares what they spend on something they can't see. And so even, you know, in the sort of low density um, insulation products that I've typically made out of mycelium and whatever waste uh, that we're using, I think what's incredibly important is to design them in a way that they are front. You know, they are the material that touches the human um, and is, is incredibly v- um, visible um, so they can't be ignored in that way. Um, sometimes the acoustic performance is what really um, brings them to the table. Um, these materials are have incredible you know, acoustic absorption. Depending on the way you design the surface, they can um, sort of control the frequencies of sound in the room. So you and I sitting in a podcast theater would work with a very nice pattern But if we're in a performance hall, that pattern completely changes. And that association with the visual with something like acoustic or thermal performance through surface modulation is sort of a a nice overlap or Venn diagram to sort of uh, probe the design um, of the panels visually. Um, In another project that I did in in upstate New York with a collaborator, um, we actually were looking at traditional ideographies um, and in Ghana, there's sort of a ideographic system called adinkra. They represent everything from sort of spiritual to environmental to cultural um, sort of messages and and meanings. And for us to take that on, because honestly, if, if you ever go to Ghana, Chris, um, 50% of all buildings have adinkra on their facades in some form and despite the change in material technology over 400 years from earth to uh, cement blocks to glass, you see the adenkra represented in different ways. They become structure or or they're sort of surface, um, you know, uh, decorations. And so we were trying to reimagine how we might use that ideography to bring in, you know, these materials. What does a coconut adenkra system look like or something that's made out of cellulose? Um, and that's a way we've sort of looked at, you know, building in meaning and value into some of the, the visual designs behind, you know, some of the bio-based materials that we've, we've used. Um, there is obviously a huge mo- movement for biophilia. Um, and that is, is quite deep because it addresses wh- what humans have evolved to um, sort of appreciate in the environment that surrounds them. Um, So everything from the way light hits the material, to the smells, um, to the way it modulates sound and and heat. These are all really important um, aspects of indoor environmental quality um, that are associated with these materials. Um, If you go a step further and actually integrate plants and living materials in there, that's a whole other realm as well of, of design and Frankly, we're so far away from the visual complexity that one would find in a forest. Um, but I think that's a huge aspiration, you know, to bring some of those benefits back into our indoor environments that have been so sanitized and sterilized you know, with the types of materials we do specify and integrate today.
0: Okay, well, on that note, I think uh, Ghana is definitely on my bucket list and um, I would love to come and see you there. It's been fascinating talking to you, Mayling, and uh, all the best for this week's talk in Melbourne.
1: Thank you, Chris.